Welcome back to the London Health Podcast and our next Homeless Health episode. This series is inspired by the stories we tell ourselves to sleep well, and we'll continue to dig into assumptions about homelessness through honest conversations, whilst also highlighting the work happening in London within the NHS, third sector organisations and local authorities to bring about transformational change for this population. Today's episode reflects the ongoing and evolving landscape relating to people in the UK who are seeking asylum or with refugee status and how they can be supported through healthcare, particularly following recent months where the UK has welcomed 7,000 people from Afghanistan through the Afghan Relocation and Assistance Policy Scheme alongside the Afghan Citizens Resettlement Scheme, ACRS, where the UK's government has committed to take around 5,000 people in the first year and 20,000 people over the coming years. We will explain things as we go, but we'll also share links to further guidance and reading with this episode. Turning to definitions. In the UK, a person becomes a refugee when government agrees that an individual who has applied for asylum meets the definitions as set out in the Refugee Convention. They will recognise that person as a refugee and issue them with refugee status documentation. Refugees have the same rights and entitlements as UK nationals, but they are more likely to experience uncertainty while they're seeking housing, employment and benefits. When referring to a person who is seeking asylum, this refers to a person who has left their country of origin and formally applied for asylum in another country, but whose application has not yet been concluded. There are additional considerations for people with refused asylum seeker status, as well as the undocumented migrants in the UK. For today's episode, I'm joined by Lisa Collins, who is Deputy Director of the Homeless Health Programme, who listeners will already be very familiar with. And we're also joined by, by Dr. Durga Siva Sivasilin from Doctors of the World, who will be here to tell us about the work which Doctors of the World are doing to support these populations in London. Uh, before we get going with today's conversation, Durga, it would be great if you could introduce yourself and tell our listeners a bit more about your background and about what Doctors of the World do. Uh, thank you very much, Alicia. So yes, hi, I'm Durgo and um, I'm a GP by background um, and I've been a GP for 10 years uh, working part time in the NHS. And then more recently over the last on and off over the last four years, I've worked for the organisation Doctors of the World. Um, and this is part of the larger international NGO Medicine de Monde. Um, Doctors of the World UK has services based only here in London and occasionally we have outreach services in other parts of the country. And what our organisation is looking to do is to improve the access of healthcare to those who are most marginalised in our society. Uh, and so for the longest period of time, we've been offering our service to um, asylum seekers and refugees, as you've mentioned, Alicia, and also to undocumented migrants. So uh, these are migrants who've come into the country who don't fall into either the category of a refugee or an asylum seeker or a refused asylum seeker, and also currently don't have uh, the necessary paperwork to be recognised as having a status in this country. Um, also more recently, we've been supporting uh, those experiencing homelessness and also those from the Gypsy Roman traveller community as well. And the way that we've been doing this is in three ways. So we have an advice line that we run five days a week um, that anybody can call. So a patient can call if they're having difficulties accessing healthcare, a healthcare professional um, or other organisations that are supporting these groups. 
We also have a clinic based in Stratford, which we temporarily closed during the pandemic, but we're just in the process of starting to open up again. And then the last area of work, which is the area that I'm involved in, is that an outreach service and a mobile clinic um, where we try to take healthcare to particularly vulnerable groups who find it difficult to access GP surgeries or hospital care. That's great. Thank you, Durga. And uh, Lisa, I don't know if you want to give us a quick intro on yourself as well to so any listeners who are new. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Alicia. And um, just to say, Durga, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. So my name is Lisa Collins. I'm the Deputy Director for the Homeless Health Programme at Healthy London Partnership. And my background is a health service manager for 30 years. Um, and uh, I've come into the homeless health team this year and it's just been really fascinating to really get to grips with the, the needs of this patient population. And we were really inspired about doing this podcast today just to dig into this conversation, I think, a little bit deeper, because I guess we hear a lot about this this patient group coming through and especially recently with what's been going on in the media. Um, so it just seems really timely just to have that just open, honest conversation about this, because I guess when we're thinking about the health needs of this patient group, you know, what 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 does that look like? What does that mean? I mean, I, I always like to boil things, you know, right down and keep things really simple. Um, so that's one of the things I'd like to talk to you about today, Durga, just to find a little bit more out about that, because my perception of this, and we talked about this, didn't we, before we, we started recording, to be really clear about the difference of this patient population. Asylum seekers, you know, they, they've come from countries where they've been persecuted and there's been a lot of violence. These are not people who are just moving country. And just a reflection from my own experience, just to bring into the mix, uh, I, I moved to Australia back 20 years ago and um, and that was my own choice. I'd moved to an English speaking country. I had a job to go to. That was really stressful. It wasn't easy. And I remember at the time thinking, I thought this would have just been a walk in the park. I'd done lots of moving around in the UK anyway. And it really gave me an appreciation as a health service manager how difficult, firstly, it is for people to be moving around to different countries. And people just don't do that for the sake of it. So add that, add into the mix people moving from countries where there's been violence, where they've been persecuted, and then forced to leave their home country, forced to leave their families and come to a country where they don't even speak the language. Hugely, hugely traumatic. So that in itself, the move... Um, I think I'd like to just register here because I think we hear so much in the media of maybe things that contradict that. But I think it's important to just have that compassion and understanding for this group of people, this group of people, these patients who are coming to our country in these circumstances. So I guess in terms of the health needs, I guess they're going to have typical health needs that we all do, but then add on top of that the trauma. And I guess, Durga, this is where I wanted to bring you in and just get your frontline experience to just dig into that a little bit deeper, just to illustrate some real life examples. Again, I think just to open up that compassion and 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 just understanding um, of, of this patient group. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Surely. So thank you. So as you mentioned, we all need healthcare, even those of us who are healthy um, or perceive ourselves to be healthy may occasionally ha have the need to see a doctor so access to healthcare is really important and you're right 
these groups that we're talking about, so asylum seekers, refugees and undocumented migrants, have particular needs. Um, and those particular needs can come from the fact that the country that they've come from may have not have had the infrastructure for healthcare, which meant that some of these people have never had access to healthcare. And I have seen individuals, for example, who've sustained injuries or health problems in the past that they've never been able to access treatment for. Even things like a broken bone, which we take you know, for granted that we can go into an A&E department and get that broken bone fixed. These individuals have come from countries where they couldn't access services to get that broken bone fixed, and then they are now experiencing the consequences of having a, a non-healed injury. Um, and also the journey that they've taken from that country to come to us is a hard one. Um, it's hard on their physical health and hard on their emotional health and their mental health. So what we're also seeing in addition to significant physical health needs that they've not had treatment for, we're also seeing the consequences to their mental health that they are really needing help for. And by the time that they've come to this country, they're really needing help for that. They're often at crisis point with their physical and mental health and are desperately needing help with that. And so as well as generally needing healthcare, these people need healthcare access as quickly as possible and ideally don't need to have lots of barriers in the way that might be preventing them from doing that. Um, now, some of the work that, that I'm doing, particularly at the moment, is providing some in-reach into hotels that are accommodating newly arrived asylum seekers. So um, this has given me an opportunity to, to meet individuals who have just come into the, into the country and are getting an opportunity to talk to somebody about their health needs for the first time. Um, and as well as helping them to register with the GP, it's trying to pick apart those multiple health issues that they have and work out how best they can can get some help with that. Um, and there are challenges from the very beginning of that process. So GP registration, um, again, is something we take for granted here. Those of us who've lived in this country for some time know the system and know how to navigate it. But for those who are coming in, it can be difficult. So First of all, people come from countries that don't necessarily have a health system that's structured like ours, so they don't understand necessarily what primary care is and what secondary care is. They may have been used to going directly to a hospital and seeing a specialist. So they need some understanding and some support with understanding what our health system is. Then they need to navigate the process of GP registration. And again, this requires language skills because this all often involves filling in forms or speaking to a receptionist, um, as well as just general literacy, being able to read and write. Um, or even more so now, a lot of processes have become digital. So during the pandemic, a lot of practices went to online registration. So then you need to have access to a smartphone or a computer or a tablet to be able to, to do that. And obviously, if you're newly entered into this country, you're not going to be able to do that. Or even if you're a refugee or an undocumented migrant, the chances are you may not have access to, to technology and your language skills may not be at the point that you're able to, to navigate that system. So our work has been to, to support and help people to register with a GP. Um, 
explain the system to them so that they know how to access healthcare. Um, and then liaise with GP practices to support them in offering services to this group because there is a high health need here and that can be a challenge to GP practices to, to do that. Um, so at Doctors of the World, as we've had a, you know, several years of experience of supporting um, these individuals, we try to help GP practices as well in, in how they're going to support this group. Just to come in there, thanks for that, Durga. Um, I guess a couple of points that I just want to dig into a bit deeper is, you know, you mentioned mental health and, you know, some of the, I guess, some of the things that you're discovering as you're doing your in-reach work into some of these hotels, these are not, these are not kind of problems that have a quick solution. You know, when somebody's got trauma, when somebody's suffering with their mental health and emotional health, like I said, just from even the journey across to a different country, there's no quick fix solution to that, is there at all? Um, and I guess, you know, what what solutions are we putting in place? Because it, I guess if you think about just, you know, when you said everybody needs access to healthcare, so and we know how difficult that can be sometimes, and especially with the pandemic and the waiting lists have gone up. How how are you coping on the front line, being able to give this patient group access to these services? Um, yeah, and I and I guess and also how are the doctors keeping themselves healthy doing this work as well? Because there's just so many different angles to this, isn't it? Just to make sure that this patient group is served um, and also the healthcare workers are also keeping healthy through this program, this process, because this has come now on top of last year with the pandemic. You know, we, we all know that how everyone's feeling in, inside healthcare or feeling a bit fatigued by now. So, um, yeah, how, how are you finding that on the front line? Sure. So mental health support particularly is very challenging. So as you said, this is a group that have um, multiple past traumas that have contributed to their current mental health status, but they also have ongoing trauma that's that's continuing. So the precarious nature of their immigration status. So they're constantly wondering and waiting. So this is talking about your asylum seekers and undocumented migrants, this precariousness around their status and um, you know, the risk of being asked to return to their country of origin as well. That is this ongoing level of trauma. There's ongoing trauma of the precarious nature of where they're going to be staying. So we've seen with newly arrived asylum seekers, they're often moved several times um, before they reach any sort of stable accommodation. And that's very difficult. Um, sometimes that happens at very last minute notice. They're suddenly asked to pack their bags and move to another accommodation site. So all of that's very difficult. They don't get a chance to settle into where they're staying and also to potentially integrate into a local community where they might get support. And all these other factors are also important in, in contributing to their mental health. So an organisation, we're sort of trying to work with the Home Office and um, with the accommodation providers for asylum seekers and refugees to see how we can try to make that process as stable um, and steady. Uh, for individuals. Um, we also look to try to address their mental health through other means with activities um, that are stimulating for them. Because the problem for a lot of asylum seekers is they are, of course, unable to work, they're unable to enter adult education, though children do go to school. And so they have a lot of time where they're stuck, not 
being able to do anything and so boredom leads to apathy leading to you know a worsening of mental health so trying to find things for people to do um, so that that isn't the case um, in terms of mental health services themselves this is very challenging at the moment um, there are very few uh, tailored mental health services for this group so that's any migrants um, and that means services that are sensitive to their uh, their journey, their cultural background and their language as well. Um, often we're having to refer people through the standard services within the NHS, which often through a GP service is a local IAPT counselling service. And there's often a long wait for that. Um, so there are real gaps at the moment uh, in NHS services. Uh, to provide sort of appropriate mental health support and unfortunately as a result of that what we often see is that these individuals bouncing in and out of crisis and mm. having to access sort of crisis mental health services instead. Um, there are some organisations so uh, organisations like Freedom From Torture, the Helen Bamber Foundation who offer sort of specific counselling services and some local authorities also their local migrant centres will offer services as well but they're very small they've got limited capacity and we've seen these organisations intermittently over the last year have to close themselves off for new referrals in order to be able to cope capacity wise um, so that's a real challenge mm. um, and obviously capacity for GPs so as you've mentioned you know GPs are very strained with general day-to-day uh, -day providing of services and then you ask them to look after a group who've got high needs that can be very challenging and it can be very difficult for the practice to know how to offer that um, and this is where kind of support from their wider team so from their CCGs and PCNs in looking at efficient systems of offering them support. Um, so we've worked with social prescribers in practices who've really helped um, with some of the difficulties of arranging appointments and translators um, and trying to, to cover everything within the small amount of time that a GP might have in an appointment. Um, and it's also important to acknowledge that the impact of talking to individuals with trauma, so that you know inevitably has an impact on the clinician or non-clinician who's talking to that person. If you're hearing these very difficult stories over and over again, it's understandably going to, to have an impact. Um, now, I'm really lucky at uh, Doctors of the World, we get offered supervision once a month. So we have someone who we can talk to in a reflective way about how this is having an impact on us. And this is something I'd really like to see in general practice um, as a whole, not just for the impact of talking to asylum seekers and refugees, but just you know listening to trauma from people anyway. Um, and we're trialling a, a valent group um, for GPs within the Tower Hamlets area, which is where I've been providing some inreach to see how we can, through a bailant group, potentially offer peer support to each other um, as we're looking after this group. Sounds great. And I, I completely agree with you about the, um, the the peer support and I think having that reflective practice to help keep you healthy. Um, so I'm glad that you've got that in place. And I agree, I think having that rolled out to GPs uh, would be really beneficial. Just wanted to touch upon something that I, um, heard our clinical lead talk about this week in terms of trauma and actually the individual needs to feel settled and it sounds like there's a lot of transient movement and that last minute pack your cases move to another hotel or another accommodation um 
And there's something to recognise that actually you need to feel in a stable position before you can even attempt to unlock some of that trauma. So I think it's important, isn't it, for us to recognise that. It's not maybe a case of just going, you know, going to do the in-reach work and providing solutions for the trauma that actually sometimes people need to just be in a settled position and feel safe before they can even access the trauma that's been held deep within their their bodies, their mental health, their emotional health, their physical health. Um, and then I just wanted to just um, just touch upon a little bit more about accessing GP services because again we talked about this before we started recording and this is some of the work that HRP has been focusing on this year as part of our programme is accessing GP and we, we both talked about our own experiences of when we've moved abroad and we've come back into the UK and how we as health professionals have struggled to get access to GP um, surgeries and um, so how much more difficult I can imagine that would be if you're coming to a new country, don't speak the language, don't even know the acronyms and the, the healthcare terminology. So just to be really clear with everybody who's listening, to access a GP in this country, you do not need to give proof of address or proof of identity to access clinical services that anybody can walk into a GP surgery and they can access services. Um, so they don't need to worry about having a proof of address. They don't need to worry about having proof of, uh, of ID or NHS numbers. If they need access to health, it's really important that people know that they can get that access. It might seem like there's barriers in place, um, but you know, to just to be clear with the GP receptionist, if, if they are finding it quite challenging to access healthcare, just to reiterate, they don't need to have proof of ID they don't need to have proof of, of address. Durga, is there anything else that you'd like to add, add to that or your experience of how patients are finding it difficult to access GP services? Of course. So the main barriers, as you've explained, is often being asked for identification or some people are being asked specifically for their immigration status. So being asked to show a visa or some sort of proof of immigration. Um, and a lot of this is coming from a, a lack of understanding of what the, the guidance is around this. As you said, everybody, however long they've been in the country for, can access NHS primary care. Um, sometimes this is sort of administrative, so there is obviously a very specific administrative process around registering somebody um, onto the NHS spine. And sometimes it can be difficult accessing that process if you don't have all of the information. And this is why a GP receptionists might decline registration because they don't have all the information to complete. Um, so actually, Doctors of the World offers a training programme called the Safe Surgeries Training Programme. And this is for all GP practices and all their staff, so administrative and clinical staff, which talks to them and reminds them of the guidance around GP registration and also provides them with some tips about how to navigate the administrative side of registering when you don't have all of that information. So, for example, if someone doesn't have an address, you know, how do you not fit, have to fill in that box for an address but still proceed with the registration process? So if there are any practices who would find that they're having those difficulties around uh, navigating the process, if they do contact us, then we can um, look at supporting you um, in navigating that. Brilliant, that sounds great. Alicia, is there anything else that we need to, to cover? 
really great that you've signposted to safe surgeries and the doctors of world training. Um, at HLP we also have some resources. We have e-learning for reception staff and we have my right to healthcare cards. So all of these resources and tools will be linking so they can help with supporting um, anyone else who's looking to register if they are having barriers or challenges. So it's something we've we've kind of covered primary care and we're also aware of the challenges for undocumented migrants, for example, um, who have the additional challenge of no recourse to public funds. Um, so for listeners um, who are less familiar, this is a condition which applies to migrants in the UK until they have obtained permanent status, which is known as indefinitely to remain or have been naturalised as citizens. So Dergra, I'm just wondering, um, is there something, any kind of specific advice you can share for helping people who have NRPF, no recourse to public funds, um, who may still be in clinical, in critical clinical need? Yes, of course. So for those who have no recourse to public funds, there are some conditions around the access to secondary care. So these individuals still have free and easy access to primary care, but they may be subject to charging around secondary care. And this is quite a complicated process and again is open to interpretation. So anybody who requires urgent and immediately necessary medical treatment in a secondary care setting should be provided with the treatment in a timely fashion, but they may be charged for it retrospectively. So they may be sent a bill afterwards. And an example of care that falls into this uh, area is antenatal care. So antenatal care is considered an immediately necessary treatment, but after women have had their baby, they are then presented with a bill for their antenatal care. If treatment is considered to be routine, then um, they may be charged up front. So they may be sent a bill, which they are asked to pay for first before they can attend any appointment or receive any treatment. Now, obviously, this is asking individuals who are unlikely to have any funds because they're a group who can't work um, to pay for services means that they are unable to pay for those services and therefore they're not going to access those services. So we know this is a massive barrier to accessing healthcare and there is a real fear within those who've got no recourse to public funds about accessing healthcare. Um, there's also a real fear in this group that the process potentially links them to the home office in some way. So there's a real concern that by trying to access NHS services, they may be exposed to the home office who may in turn return them to their country of origin. Um, so these are two kind of big barriers to accessing really important secondary care. And what we know is that the actual cost of this treatment that this group might be uh, asking for is very small in comparison to the costs required to uh, the administrative costs around trying to chase people up for for these bills. So really, it doesn't make financial sense at all to be charging people for secondary care. And it's something that's often very conflated in the media around you know, how much um, migrants might be costing the NHS or, you know, they're talking about ridiculous amounts which don't exist. This is a very small group who who don't access the NHS very much and so are asking for very small amounts. But the administrative process around the chasing of of the of these fees is huge. Um, and is also it doesn't feel like a very good use of NHS resources. Yeah, I agree with that. And I'm just thinking as you were speaking about, you know, 
Um, if you've got people coming from countries who whose healthcare system looks very different to our own, um, there might be a fear coming from that perspective as well because they don't realise that our healthcare system is different. Um, and and I guess as well, if you've got people who are not accessing healthcare when they really need it, they, it we might end up seeing them in A and E anyway. You know, when they ha when the, the health condition just gets that bad. So if we were looking at costs again, I think it would be so much more appropriate for people to access services in a way where it's not affecting and damaging their health or making it worse rather than coming through A&E anyway. Um, but you're right, I think it's interesting how this can be blown out of proportion in the media, but I think it's really important for listeners to to note that um, it is important that they do, you know, if, if they need access to healthcare, that they do come forward and they do access healthcare. Um, and not that I'm aware of our information's linked up with the home office. I don't think, you know, if you know any different. I think there's a perception that, you know, that all our IT systems talk to each other and we're really organised. And actually the reality is, as we all know, after being in healthcare for so long, a lot of our IT systems are all kind of patched together at the back, aren't they? Um, but so, yes, I guess it's just, you know, the important message to put out to people is that if you do need to access healthcare, then, you know, please don't see any of these, uh, what you might perceive as barriers to stop you from coming forward, um, I guess, I guess is the thing that I'd like to mention here. But um, yeah, I don't know if we've got any, any other final thoughts or reflections, Alicia, before, before we wrap up. No, no, that's just an interesting point. I think the, the note about the, the distrust and the fear of data being shared for fear of deportation, I think that's something which we hear in a similar vein with street homelessness, where those individuals, they distrust the system, they don't want to engage just fearing what will be done with their data, what will happen to them. And so it kind of links back to when I was thinking about everyone in, which was unprecedented at the time, there was additional central funding from the government, partners were working across health, housing, the third sector. But that really brought to light what success looks like when there is that cohesive, consistent support which is happening. And I think as a final reflection, I'm just wondering, putting it to both both of you from frontline and the program management perspective, what what would success look like in this case for supporting asylum migrant groups through health? I mean, is it a case of preventing anyone from falling through the gaps and experiencing street homelessness themselves? Is it preventing someone from having escalating health risks and um, yeah, it's just something I was wondering and what those solutions might look like to bring about that successful health response. I, I can jump in quickly because mine's going to be a quick one. Um, I, and I feel this comes from just my old school sort of mentality around this patient at the centre and the money follows the patient. You know, I've, I've done um, commissioning from inside acute care and uh, and I, I believe that the patient should always be at the centre. Um, and the money should follow them rather than the money being negotiated up front. So for me, I think if we can put those two things in place, then we wouldn't go far wrong. Um, everybody's going to be, you know, all their healthcare needs are going to be different depending on the individual. So we can't put in a, um, a one fix solution that caters to all. But I think if we could put those two things in place, uh, then I don't think we'd go far wrong. Durga, I don't know if you've got any other final thoughts to add to that 
Yeah, I think my final thoughts apply both to our migrant population and to rough sleepers. So these groups are both thought of as temporary groups. So any services that are, are set up or commissioned for them as, are done on a very temporary basis without no, any long term oversight for them. I think if we were able to accept that these groups are, are always going to be here, um, and as one, for example, with migrants, as they move through the immigration process and you know, develop a naturalised status, there are going to be other people migrating to this country anyway, and the, and the same with those experiencing homelessness. So we need to see these services as needing to be long term um, for us to develop them rather than, you know, always being kind of crisis management services. And I think that would they would offer much better services um, for this population who we're serving and also make it much easier for those healthcare professionals working in those services as well. Oh, that's great. Thank you both. I think there's so much to think about and we've covered a lot from NRPF, primary care registrations, trauma-informed care, mental health services. So I think in all honesty, we could have several more episodes covering healthcare for these groups. So thank you, Doug, for your time today and for your expertise. It's always really interesting hearing work which is happening on the ground and what insights you're picking up. Um, I'll just say to our listeners, we hope you'll join us again soon and I will leave Lisa and Durga to say their final goodbyes as well. Thanks, Alicia. And again, Durga, thank you so much for joining us. We're so grateful that you've um, come here today and shared, shared all of your expertise. So thank you from behalf of HLP and myself as well. Thank you both. So thank you, Alicia and Lisa, for the opportunity. Thank you.